1: Joining us today on Binge, Jessica Gao, head writer, executive producer of She-Hulk, Attorney at Law, new episodes airing Thursdays on Disney+. Plus. Jessica, it's great to have you. Thank you so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. Uh, I, mean, I, think, I think the first question, obviously, given how hungry people are for MCU content, is just what it's like sort of entering that universe uh after i guess multiple multiple attempts uh, of pitching stuff tell me about that story how the relationship began
0: well i mean thanks for not specifying that it was multiple failed attempts first of all <laughs> <laughs> um uh, you know i mean it really was a dream come true because after so many attempts you know at a certain point you start to feel like maybe this isn't going to happen you know maybe what wasn't meant to be so when i you know when it did happen truly, like, the last three years has just been... has felt very surreal, and also to get to this point has felt completely surreal.
1: Yeah, what... Do, I mean, why why were you so intent on making it work? Were you a longtime fan? Did you grow up with the comics? And did you have existing relationships with them that just hadn't turned into real deals? Uh,
0: no existing relationships, but I was a longtime fan of the MCU specifically. You know, I grew up reading comics, Um, and, uh, but when, when Marvel started making movies, like, I mean, they just, I, I felt like they kind of blew all other superhero movies out of the water, you know, and I was just such a huge fan. I watched every movie, you know, opening weekend, Thursday night at midnight, and, uh, my, and my goal really, I was a TV writer, but my goal was, I want to write a Marvel movie. Like, that's, that's what I love. That's what's exciting to me. I just loved what they did with these movies and uh and so you know th- that's really where it came from and she-hulk was from within marvel comics she-hulk was my favorite character and uh but you know they kind of choose the project they want to do and then they kind of go out to writers so it wasn't like i could just go in t- to them and say like i've decided you guys are gonna make a she-hulk movie now <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so that's why you know the the first couple of attempts were them coming to me and uh saying like this is the movie we're gonna make now like you know, show us, show us what you would do with it. You know, pitch us. And um, and for each of those, you know, I pitched them. But honestly, even my very first time pitching to them, um, my very first meeting with anybody at Marvel was with Brad Winterbaum. And I brought up She-Hulk just because she was my favorite. And, you know, I was obviously fishing to see if they had any plans. And, um, and he told me I was the first person to ever bring up She-Hulk, which both excited me, but also made me feel like, oh no, <laughs> like, what's gonna happen? <laughs> And then maybe I'm was, on to know, something yeah and then it was years before they announced that you know three failed attempts later and, and years later they announced they were doing a, a She-Hulk TV show and I was like oh man this is this is it like TV is my wheelhouse you know I've I, I can't imagine anyone else has been loudly banging on the She-Hulk door at that studio you know as much right. as me so it kind of just felt like everything everything aligned you know when And I'd warned them multiple times that if they ever did anything with She-Hulk, they had to call me or else I would commit arson against them.
1: (laughs) So that's interesting. So as someone who was obviously a keen observer of MCU from the outside, right, and read the the original material, talk about what it was like to sort of move inside and have those books opened up in terms of how their process works.
0: Uh, What really surprised me was uh, from the initial stages, like, how much freedom I got. Because, you know, I... I had, I imagined that because it's such a like tightly controlled universe and it's so connected that of course there would be a lot of boundaries. You know, you're probably going to be reined into this very small pen, but that really surprised me that at the very beginning, Kevin Feige was always just give me a good idea. Like he'll think outside the box and, and it might also have something to do with the fact that because I'm entering the MCU so late, they've already done so much stuff that they are now open to. You know exploring different avenues and um areas that they previously hadn't tread into um, and so you know i really could just do whatever and also what's the worst that could happen they just say no you can't do that think of something else um, so it, it just felt kind of like it felt like a safe environment to kind of just explore ideas and you know kevin did such a like he was so great about pushing me too to to kind of step outside of, of what i thought would be constraints um, And for this show specifically, because the format is like a legal comedy and it means that built into the show is a lot of lawsuits, a lot of, you know, trials. Um, It kind of naturally created this need to bring in other characters from um, the the other movies and the comics. You know, it it just, it was the format really worked for for bringing in the rest of the universe into this project.
1: Right. That's interesting. I mean, I think already the first few weeks here, what's getting the most buzz is not just, obviously the casting is amazing and the the actors that you've landed, which we'll talk about, uh, are incredible. Um, Bringing back Tim Roth, Ruffalo, obviously, and and Tatiana, who's incredible, Uh, but also uh, your own inspirations for sort of the tone, right? I mean, I've I've been told you referenced Fleabag in some early uh, conversations about how you wanted it to sound.
0: Yes, yes, Um, because the tone of, you know, for any comedy, like the tone is so important. There's so many different types of humor um, and it can really go so many different ways. And the two shows that I referenced when I pitched the show were Fleabag and Better Call Saul. You know, uh, Fleabag because it's just, it was just such a beautiful, wonderful, raw portrait of this like human being, you know, who like this woman with all these struggles and was just so open with everything that she was and everything that she was dealing with. And then of course the, the obvious, which is the fourth wall breaks, I've always loved fourth wall breaks, you know? And I, and I love how, like, there's this intimacy with fourth wall breaks between the main <laughs> character and the audience, you know? And on our, our show, we really use the fourth wall break as, um, like, a way for Jen, for She-Hulk to treat the audience as, like, her little friend. Her, You know, you're, you watching, you're her secret little friend that she divulges certain things that are very interior to her that she doesn't really say to anyone else within her world. And then of course better call saul like because it's such a brilliant like you know lawyer show but what we really liked about better call Saul too was that like so much of the interesting stuff was happening outside of the courtroom you know um and all and also how that informs what happens in the courtroom like the stuff outside of the courtroom is just
1: as important if not more important than what goes into the courtroom i think that's interesting especially since and i know you've made this point a couple of times is that the character herself is such a touchstone for how identity works, especially in the workplace, right? How others mm-hmm. view you, um, and, and in this case, it's highly, it's highly physical. But that that emotional connection to, in this case, the viewer sort of re- relates to that um, that vulnerability, I guess.
0: Yes, absolutely. You know, because um, she she is the most when she's She Hulk, she is one of the most powerful beings on earth. And yet she still is beholden to a boss. You know, she's still beholden to the HR department. She still has to show up on time and do her job. And she has to do, with, do it all with a lot of public scrutiny and a lot of scrutiny from everyone at work because she she sticks out. You know, there's no way to hide the fact that she is this giant, green, powerful woman with a very famous cousin who's just moving through this corporate environment, trying to file documents.
1: That's interesting. Um, when, when viewers look at, I'm just looking at the library here of, uh, of Disney Plus MCU, the Lokis, the What Ifs, the Ms. Marvels, the Moon Knights, the Hawkeyes, is there a thread or is there an effort to make each incremental uh, series uh, something that stands on its own?
0: well speaking only from our show's perspective like it really felt like we were allowed to kind of do our own thing and make kind of carve out our own little corner of the marvel cinematic universe but of course with everything in the mcu like all roads lead to and come from kevin so um you know i have to believe he has like a master plan for everything but for us like we really felt kind of the freedom and the excitement and the support to really kind of create our own niche and um and do a thing that hasn't been done before in the mcu
1: right um let's talk a little bit about some industry dynamics you know there's this conception and we actually talked about this with danny strong the other day uh, about dope sick there's this idea that oh you're a scriptwriter, you're a showrunner, you're an ep you're in hollywood and they're all these big new players in media they need content they've got deep pockets it must be a seller's market it must be easy to get your project bought he really he pushed back on that with us the other day and i know you've said as a writer it's not as easy as it sounds
0: it really isn't yes there are so many different outlets now which is so it's nice that you have choices but like there's never any sort of guarantee that something's going to get made just because i think that's the big misconception is that just because something gets bought doesn't mean that it gets made like most things that are bought don't get made and it's a gamble because you know you might go around and pitch a bunch of things and you get multiple offers and you're like oh my god a bidding war everybody loves me everybody wants this this is great but then you have to p- you have to uh, not only like think about like what am i getting out of this but also out of each offer but you also have to think what are the chances that this is actually going to reach an audience because y- you might be developing it for a year or two years or even three years and then they decide like we're not going to move forward and you just spend all this time And you you sold this thing that is like your baby. And after a while, they just decide, no, we don't want it. And we're not going to make it. And it's heartbreaking. There's nothing you can do about it, you know, and then there's constant regime changes at places. So the person who was championing your stuff might not make it to the finish line with you and might not be there to kind of help push you through the finish line. So there's truly no guarantees. And um, and so in that sense, it doesn't nothing feels like a done deal.
1: Right. You add another layer onto that, and that is if you're writing for television where episodes are shorter than, say, an original movie, uh, you're dealing with a discount just just right there from from the start.
0: Yeah, absolutely because the you know the shorter episode orders, that means less time that you're working, which means less pay, you know. Um, whether you're getting paid a weekly rate or an episodic rate, just less episodes just mean less time working and getting paid for it. Um, whereas, you know, back in the day, the, the years of, of 22 episode orders are pretty much gone completely now. And back then a 22 episode order meant you worked for almost the entire year and that can sustain you. Um, whereas now it's like, you know, for a 10 episode order, you're probably working as a staff writer, you're probably working like 20 weeks, which means, you know, you either have to learn how to live off of 20 weeks of pay, or you're going to have to fill your year with multiple shows in order to just piece together. Uh, a living. Right.
1: As for actors, I mean, clearly Disney Plus is not having trouble attracting major talent, Uh, some of them uh, related to the universe in the past, some new to it. Do you get a sense that those actors, they are still, uh, they want to be purist and appear only in theatrical releases, or the migration to streaming and television continues as it has for the past few years?
0: I think it really varies from the act, from actor to actor, because I think some feel that way. And I think there are others that like, enjoy kind of the the schedule and uh, of TV, but also the fact that in TV, you know, it's so, because it's so character based and you get to live with this character for so long that you really get to spend a lot of time and explore all different avenues of this character. You really get to inhabit this person in this world. Um, and I think that's appealing to some people too. Um, I really do think it, it goes, comes down to the actor and I mean, we're very lucky that we have the cast that we we do because they I mean they're all so good on this show
1: <laughs> yes i can I can imagine um, you know you're on a you're on a a talk show essentially called Binge, and we named it binge a few years ago because at the time it really was uh, the advent of streaming and original content, and you would binge a bunch of shows but lately it seems like uh, the streamers have figured out that that weekly episodic drops make more sense has that How how do you feel about that term?
0: I, you know, when when binging was kind of in its heyday, I loved it just because you know I can't I don't have any self control when it comes to TV. I'll I'll watch (laughs) I'll stay up and watch eighteen hours of TV. Um, But uh, uh, but on the creator side, uh, I do I do love going to week to week because it's so nice to have like the the feeling of a water cooler conversation happening again. You know, like. I love that every week people have time to like digest the episode, talk about their theories, like talk about what's so, what was so fun. Like it just becomes part of like the fabric of your social life and it becomes conversation. And for something like Marvel where, you know, every little detail is scrutinized and there's so much speculation. And, and also for me, the most rewarding thing is seeing what memes come out of each episode.
1: <laughs> that is the ultimate compliment, isn't it? I guess the, the which GIF is gonna go universal?
0: <laughs> totally. And it's so fun when you're making the show that, like, you really have no idea, like, what's going to hit, you know? And it's, that's why it's just so fun to see what people glom onto.
1: That's hilarious. I can imagine being on set and thinking, maybe this is it, maybe not. We'll find out in eight months.
0: <laughs> that's absolutely what happens.
1: Um, let me ask you about yourself. Um, you've had experience writing for all kinds of properties, uh, Nickelodeon, uh, HBO, obviously now Disney+. Plus can you choose a favorite child i mean have you had enough sampling yet to say i kind of like culturally what these guys do over over this other entity
0: um yeah i mean i guess for me i do still just really love hard comedies you know and um i love writing for adults i started out writing for kids um but have uh, like the first six years of my career um but moving out of that i do like writing for adults just because i get to really write about the themes that kind of matter to me and really put a lot of like my life experience into things um i think up to this point i would say i would i would say like she-hulk is the proudest thing that i've ever worked on definitely like it's my proudest piece of work
1: Uh, and i know you've talked about we got the emmys coming up uh in uh, september but i know you've talked about sort of you know in this era where we sort of question the value of awards what an impact it had on your own career trajectory right
0: yes it that it really does make a difference for the person on the receiving end you know it changes the way like whether or not it's justified it changes the way people think about you uh professionally you know because you do have some sort of validation for it and um so it's it does mean something to like you know buyers and producers executives um so you know it becomes this kind of marker that you know you've reached a certain like echelon of people wanting to work with you right
1: as for the series um i think uh we're as we're speaking we've had one episode drop can you just give how do you want viewers to think about the arc as it's going to come to us in the next couple of months uh
0: I, i think of the entire first season as her true origin story you know in the first episode we obviously saw like her physical origin story but the thematic arc of this first season is really the like emotional and mental origin story of this woman, Jen Walters, becoming and accepting and figuring out how to fit She-Hulk into her life.
1: We're so excited for you. Uh, congratulations, of course, on all of this. And we look forward to a lot more. Uh, Jessica, thanks for the time. Good to see you as always.
0: Thank you so much for having
1: me. Now, Jessica Gow, creator, head writer, and EP of She-Hulk Attorney at Law. As we said, new episodes Thursdays on Disney+. Plus.
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you.